Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 17, the Book of Acts, chapter 7. Well, the final words of our last lesson were meant to prepare us for today's teaching in Acts chapter 7. Here we find Stephen, full of grace and power, standing before the Sanhedrin with a mob of angry Jews wanting to lynch him for supposedly blaspheming Moses' God and the temple. Now, we were told in Acts chapter 6 that Stephen had gotten into an argument with members of the synagogue of the freedmen, no doubt over doctrine, and they simply couldn't compete with or refute his wisdom, nor could they match the authority with which he spoke because it was never a fair fight. He had the Holy Spirit. They didn't. How many in the Messianic and Hebrew roots movements have tried diligently, patiently, lovingly, hopefully, to show Bible teachers and professors and pastors and elders and rabbis and even believing friends and family members what God's Word so plainly says about a number of important subjects that are central to a correct understanding of our faith, only to face anger, accusations of heresy, when these religious leaders have no defensible response to explain their dubious doctrines. Thus chapter, uh, Acts chapter 6 verses 10 and 11 explained that because Stephen tried to persuade those who had no defensible response to Stephen's teachings, they retaliated. And they retaliated by using false witnesses to fling false accusations against Stephen. However, in the name of intellectual honesty, it is also the case in the biblical era that witnesses can be called false, not for lying, but rather when it's discovered that they had not witnessed the actual event. Nor were they, or rather they were presenting maybe second-hand evidence or hearsay, thus their testimony, testimony is disqualified. We can't be 100% certain that the latter isn't the case, but we can be 99.9% certain because that it's not because it is inconceivable that Stephen actually suggested that Yeshua, who's dead, was going to destroy the temple. And, or that Stephen would deny Moses. As Stephen's being interrogated, we're told that his face began to glow like that of an angel. See, this compares with what happened to Moses as he descended from Mount Sinai after a close encounter with God. So Luke's idea in including this bit of information that otherwise really adds nothing to the narrative is to show that God was present with Stephen. And that what Stephen was about to say in response to the questioning is divinely inspired. 
Let's read Acts chapter 7. The longest continuous speech by anyone in the book of Acts. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1368. 1368. Acts chapter 7. Read along with me. The Kohen Haggadol, the high priest, asked, Are these accusations true? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to Avraham Avenu in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Leave your land and your family and go to the land that I will show you. So he left the land of the Kasdim, the Chaldeans, and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God made him move to the land where you are living now. He gave him no inheritance in it, not even space for one foot, yet he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though at the time he was childless. What God said to him was, Your descendants will be aliens in a foreign land, where they they will be in slavery and oppressed for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that enslaves them, God said, and afterwards they will leave and worship me in this place. And he gave him a brief milah, circumcision. So he became the father of Yitzhak, Isaac, and did his circumcision on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the fell the twelve patriarchs. Now the patriarchs grew jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery in Egypt. But Adonai was with him, and he rescued him from all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him chief administrator over Egypt and over all of his household. Now there came a famine that caused much suffering throughout Egypt and Canaan. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, and Yosef's family became known to Pharaoh. Yosef then sent for his father Yaakov, all his relatives, 75 people. And Yaakov, Jacob, went down to Egypt. There he died, as did our other ancestors. Their bodies were removed to to Shechem and buried in the tomb Avraham bought from the family of Hamor in Shechem for a certain sum of money. Well, as the time drew near for the fulfillment of the promise God had made to Avraham, the number of of our people in Egypt increased greatly until there arose another king over Egypt who had no knowledge of Yosef. With cruel cunning, this man forced our fathers to put their newborn babies outside their homes so that they would not survive. It was then that Moshe, Moses, was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. For three months he was reared in his father's house. And when he was put out of his home, Pharaoh's daughter took him, brought him up as her own son. So Moses was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he became both a powerful speaker and a man of action. But when he was 40 years old, the thought came to him to visit his brothers, the people of Israel, and on seeing one of them being mistreated, he went to his defense. He took revenge by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed his brothers would understand that God was using him to rescue them, but they didn't understand. And when he appeared the next day as they were fighting and tried to make peace between them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? The one who was mistreating his fellow pushed Moses away and said, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You want to kill me the way you killed that Egyptian yesterday? 
Upon hearing this, Moses fled the country. He became an exile in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. Well, after 40 more years, an angel appeared to him in the desert near Mount Sinai in the flames of a burning thorn bush. And when Moses saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And as he approached to get a better look, there came the voice of Adonai. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Moshe trembled with fear. He didn't dare to look. Adonai said to him, Take off your sandals because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have clearly seen how my people are being oppressed in Egypt. I have heard their cry. I have come down to rescue them and now I will send you to Egypt. This Moshe, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge is the very one whom God sent as both ruler and ransomer by means of an angel that appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing miracles and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moshe, who said to the people of Israel, God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. This is the man who was in the assembly in the wilderness, accompanied by the angel that had spoken to him at Mount Sinai and by our fathers, the man who was given living words to pass on to us. But our fathers didn't want to obey him. On the contrary, they rejected him. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us some gods to lead us, because this Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. That was when they made an idol in the shape of a calf, and they offered a sacrifice to it and held a celebration in honor of what they'd made with their own hands. So God turned away from them, gave them over to worship the stars, as has been written in the book of the prophets. People of Israel, it wasn't to me that you offered slaughtered animals and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness. No, you carried the tent of Molech. And the star of your god, Rephan. The idols you made so that you could worship them. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babel. Our fathers had the tent of wilderness, a witness in the wilderness. It had been made just as God who spoke to Moses had ordered it made, according to the pattern Moses had seen. Later on, our fathers who had received it brought it in with Joshua when they took the land away from the nations that God drove out before them. So it was until the days of David. He enjoyed God's favor and asked if he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob and Shlomo Solomon did build him a house. But Ha'elyon does not live in places made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, says Adonai, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of a house could you build for me? What kind of a place could you devise for my rest? Didn't I myself make all these things? Stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You continually oppose the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. You do the same things your fathers did. Which of all the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who told in advance about the coming of the Sadiq, the righteous one. Now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You, you who received the Torah as having been delivered by angels, but do not keep it. On hearing these things, they were cut to their hearts. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw God's Shekinah with Yeshua standing at the right hand of God. Look, 
he exclaimed, I see heaven to open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they began yelling at the top of their voices so that they wouldn't have to hear him. And with one accord they rushed at him. They threw him outside the city and began stoning him. And the witnesses laid down their coats at the feet of a young man named Shaul, Paul. As they were stoning him, Stephen called out to God, Lord Yeshua, receive my spirit. And then he kneeled down and shouted out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And with that, he died. Verse 1 specifies who's questioning Stephen. It's the high priest, who at this time is Caiaphas. Now because the high priest doubles as the head of the Sanhedrin, it's his prerogative to lead the questioning of the accused if he chooses to do so. And the question is, are these accusations true? The response of Stephen is long. It doesn't really address the question directly. Why didn't he just say no? Or perhaps explain the charges were exaggerated or greatly distorted from what he'd actually said. See, we need to keep at the forefront of our minds as we view this story that the false accusers were from where? A local synagogue. Thus, while they occasionally visited the temple for sacrifice and ceremony, their main allegiance and the place where they received their religious doctrines was their synagogue. So was it really so upsetting to them that Stephen supposedly said something against the temple? Well, yes and no. The matter of the temple we will discuss shortly in a way you won't expect. But the primary issue was their claim he was blaspheming Moses. What they meant by blaspheming Moses was that to dispute their traditions was blasphemy. And this was because the traditions, also called oral Torah, that were rabbinical interpretations of the written Torah of Moses was the epicenter of the synagogue. And whatever it was that Stephen said, they took it as an assault on their cherished traditions. Essentially, Stephen was charged with teaching against everything that Judaism stood for. Now, we spent much time in trying to understand the place and the nature of the synagogue in New Testament times. But we also need to remember the nature of Judaism at this same time. Before Babylon, Jewish life and religion sought their direction from the temple. That was the God-ordained way, and it was generally the only source that was available. It was the priests and the Levites' job to, among other things, teach the people the law of Moses and then to enforce it. If we were to invent a name to call that body of teachings and the way of life the priests taught, we could rightly label it as Hebrewism. That is, the civil code for the Hebrews with its rules and its regulations was essentially the Torah itself. And it was to be followed by all Hebrews since it was given by God at Mount Sinai through Moses to all Hebrews, all 12 tribes plus the Levites. 
However, centuries later, that situation changed dramatically. Around 700 years prior to Christ, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel were sent away in exile to foreign lands for their disobedience to God. The Assyrians were the Lord's hand of judgment. The 10 tribes that formed northern Israel were conquered. They were scattered throughout the vast Assyrian Empire. And due to their disinterest in being Hebrews any longer, most were assimilated into the world of the Gentiles. Throughout the Asian continent, others were even sent into North Africa. What remained of the Hebrews in the Holy Land was the tribe of Judah and most of the tribe of Benjamin. But rather quickly, Benjamin assimilated into the tribe of Judah. The name that was given to the people of Judah was Jews. And soon enough, they too would be exiled from the Holy Land, only for them it would be to Babylon. Now because one result of the Babylonian conquest was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and thus the end of a functioning priesthood, so the Hebrewism that used the Torah of Moses as its civil and religious code was soon replaced with something else. And that something else was a mixture of Torah and some newly formed traditions. And since this was only applicable to the tribe of Judah, ten tribes were no longer being were no longer present, having melded into the Gentile world, this new hybrid religion became the basis of Judaism, the religion of Judah. The Jews at that time didn't actually refer to their religion as Judaism. That's something that would come centuries later. Nonetheless, all the practices and customs that in time gained the label of Judaism were being developed and they were being practiced by the Jews during and after their Babylonian captivity. So to be clear, it was against this new hybrid religion of Torah and tradition whose home was the synagogue, a religion that we call Judaism that Stephen is said to have offended. Now remember, the temple was controlled by who? The priests and the Sadducees. And the temple and the Sadducees denied the validity of the very thing that the synagogues taught, believed in, demanded adherence to, traditions, oral Torah. So as as mainstream Christianity regularly claims... Was Stephen now distancing himself from the law of Moses and from the culture of the Jews? That is, that the believing congregation to whom he belonged was in the process of ceasing to be Jews and instead becoming Christians. Verse 2 immediately answers that question. Brothers and fathers, he says, listen to me. Stephen makes it clear that he regards himself as one of them and they remain a part of him. 
he's in no way separating himself from the Jews of Judea. And from here, he goes on to recall the heritage that he feels he shares with his brothers and sisters and fathers. The heritage that all Jews know starts with Abraham, who he calls our father. Not your father. Not my father. Our father. Alright, so far so good. It's important to note that everything Stephen is quoting about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph is theoretically taken from the Torah so that he could demonstrate both his knowledge of the Torah as well as his dedication to it. But a problem arises that isn't easy to spot unless you know what to look for. If we check the Hebrew Bible, you're going to find some of the details that Stephen quotes don't line up. I need you to pay attention to this place because this is not trivial. For instance, in verse 4, Stephen says that during the time Abraham was living in Haran, his father died, and then God made Abraham move to the land, that is, to Canaan, which is now at least part of the land now, is Judah. Genesis 11.26 says that Abraham's father, Terah, was 70 when Abraham was born. And then Genesis 11.32 specifically says Terah died at the age of 205. But Genesis 12.4 says that Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran so 70 plus 75 equals 145. So that would mean Terak was 145 years old when he died, not 205. Yet 205 is what the Hebrew Tanakh clearly says. One of these numbers has to be incorrect. But which one? And by the way, this was as evident to the people that day as it is to us. So what to do? Well, we talked last week about the Samaritans who had established their own temple and priesthood, but who had also modified the Torah in some ways to match their traditions. And one of the ways they did that was that they changed Genesis 11.32 to say 145 years instead of 205. In other words, they decided that there was an error in the math. So they corrected it in their Samaritan Pentateuch, their, their Torah. The Sanhedrin, to whom Stephen was speaking, would likely have immediately noticed his use of the number 145 instead of 205, since this was an area of dispute. Would they then say that Stephen had made a basic mistake that most Jewish children would have recognized? No. This would have told them something important that infuriated them all the more. Stephen was quoting the Samaritan Pentateuch, the holy book of the despised Samaritans. Why would he do that? Well, in order to keep this train of thought and move to the point that I'd like to make, I want you to drop down in your reading to Acts 7.14. Take a look at it. Acts 7.14. 
there we have Stephen saying that Jacob and all of his relatives went down to Egypt to meet Joseph. All 75 of them. However, the Hebrew Bible says this in Genesis 46, verse 27. The sons of Joseph born to him in Egypt were two in number. Thus all the people in Jacob's family who entered Egypt numbered 70. The Hebrew Tanakh says 70, not 75. However, in the Samaritan Pentateuch and in the Greek Septuagint, the number is 75. Now remember that I pointed out last time that Stephen was a Hellenist Jew. His name was Greek, his first language was Greek, and he would have originally come to Judah from somewhere foreign. Here's the crux. Was Stephen perhaps from Samaria? Could he have been a Samaritan? Well, the people present would have caught the differences between the Hebrew Torah and the Greek Torah because the synagogue used mostly the Greek Torah while the temple strictly used the Hebrew Torah. But there's another clue that pretty well nails matters down. Move down now from Acts 14 to verses 15 and 16. Because there Stephen says that the place that Abraham bought for a tomb for his family was where? Shechem. And he bought that tomb from Hamor of Shechem. Listen, however, to the Hebrew Tanakh, the Old Testament, and what it says about where Abraham bought a burial plot and from whom? In Genesis 23, 17-20, we read this. Thus the field of Ephron of Machpelah, which is by Mamre, the field, its cave, and all the trees in and around it were deeded to Abraham as his possession in the presence of the sons of Het, who belonged to the ruling council of the city. Then Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of Machpelah by Mamre, also known as Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and its cave had been purchased from Abraham from the sons of Het as a burial site which would belong to him. Yes, I know Stephen was talking about burying Jacob and Joseph and not Sarah in Shechem. However, once again, listen to another passage from the Hebrew Tanakh in Genesis 49. Verses 29-33 Then he, Jacob, charged them as follows I am to be gathered to my people Bury me with my ancestors in the cave That is in the field of Ephron the Hittite The cave in the field of Machpelah By Mamre in the land of Canaan Which Abraham bought together with the field From Ephron the Hittite As a burial place belonging to him There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Itzach and his wife Rivkah. There they buried Leah, the field and the cave in it, which was purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished charging his sons, he drew up his legs into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. The point is that the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, says Jacob was buried in the same cave, that Abraham buried Sarah and that cave was brought was bought from Ephron the Hittite and it was near Hebron, not Shechem. So why this glaring discrepancy? Have we got a problem here? 
Was Stephen just a poor student of the Bible? So he's just kind of mumbling nonsense, whatever comes to his little brain? No. The Samaritan tradition was that Abraham bought the cave from Hamor and buried everyone near Shechem, not Hebron. Why this different tradition? (laughs) Because Shechem was in Samaria. Hebron was in the south of Judea. You get it? Stephen was quoting Samaritan tradition about the burial place of the patriarchs. Why else would he do that if he weren't a Samaritan? He certainly wouldn't have learned that at the temple. I went through this little Sherlock Holmes exercise to make the point that it is nearly certain Stephen was a hated Samaritan who had practiced the Samaritan religion until sometime before he became a believer. My speculation is he was probably a Jew who lived in Samaria from birth and so was of course taught the Samaritan traditions. He had not yet let go of the traditions of the Samaritans or just as likely didn't even know that the Hebrew Bible had a different tradition about these things he was quoting. And once that became clear to his accusers from the synagogue and from the Sanhedrin, he was literally a dead man walking. To them, Stephen being a Samaritan, that would explain his supposed bent against Judaism. And it would explain to us why the men of the synagogue reacted so irrationally about this supposed threat of destruction that Stephen's master Yeshua, even though he was dead, was going to wreak upon the Jerusalem temple. After all, the issue of the temple was a very sensitive one at this time. The Samaritans had a rival temple at Mount Gerizim and thought the Jerusalem temple was illegitimate and vice versa. Jealousy and rivalry is a terrible thing, especially when it involves religion. But Stephen being a Samaritan, that would also explain this blind hatred that they felt towards him once they figured out that he indeed was a Samaritan and thus their murderous desire to kill him immediately. Let's back up now to verse 3 which begins Stephen's long overview of the history of the Hebrews to which he claims brotherhood. Now we're not going to go over over every detail. Rather, we're going to simply follow his path. Now since it was with Abraham that God made a covenant that created the Hebrew people and set aside a particular land for a national homeland, it is the logical place to start. Now I want you to notice that the main point Stephen makes about Abraham concerns the land. The land is the key because the land and the people, the Hebrews, are organically connected. Thus we see Stephen speak about how Abraham was to leave his land then to go to a land that God would show him. And then after Abraham's father Terach died, only then did Abraham journey to that land. And next he even says that although 
Abraham didn't receive any land for his own use, the land did go to his descendants. Then in verse 8, land's used in a different way. Before Abraham's descendants receive the land that God set aside for them, they're going to be aliens in a foreign land where they will be slaves for 400 years. The next milestone is that Abraham received the rite of circumcision as a sign of the covenant made between God and Abraham. To reiterate, the Abrahamic covenant primarily, not exclusively, but primarily concerns land. Now notice something that is often misunderstood. Circumcision was first used as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which happens five or six centuries before it was incorporated into the Mosaic covenant. So while the Abrahamic covenant was built around the land, the covenant of Moses was built mostly around the people. It was about how redeemed people are to behave and conduct themselves before the Lord and about what a relationship with God and His people is to look like. Circumcision was incorporated into the law of Moses. Thus we see how circumcision regarding Abraham's covenant that was about land was integrated with the Mosaic covenant that was about God's people. God made the two issues of His people and of his land inseparable through a single sign of circumcision. Next, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are passed to Isaac. And of course, Stephen points out the all-important circumcision ceremony, the Berit Milah. And then he moves quickly to Jacob, son of Isaac, as next in line, and that Jacob became the father of what Stephen calls the twelve patriarchs. He's not confusing the well-known term the patriarchs, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rather, he's just using the term patriarchs in a more general way as referring to the founders of each of the twelve tribes of Israel. The next stage of history that Stephen recounts is of the life of Joseph. Now, there are for sure two points to this part of Stephen's speech. First, is that it shows the fulfillment of God's oracle to Abraham that Israel would wind up in a foreign land as slaves before they received their own land inheritance. And how it all came about. Second of all, is that Stephen points out how Israel continued with a long pattern of at times being faithful, at other times rebellious and how God would punish and then rescue with the goal of redemption for Israel's grave trespasses and thus never closing the door on the possibility of God's mercy and of Israel's restoration. Yet, there may well be a third point that Stephen is making by focusing on Joseph. Joseph's life somewhat mirrors that of Messiah Yeshua. And considering that Stephen was all about preaching the gospel, I'm convinced that he intended to draw that parallel. And he does so by pointing out that Joseph was the savior of Israel by bringing the clan to Egypt to survive a famine. But at first, Israel didn't recognize their own brother. Thus, they didn't know for a time the identity of their savior and that he was one of their own. Stephen recalls 
that once it was established that Joseph would save Israel, his father Jacob then brought all of his clan to Egypt, and it was there that he died, but his bones were brought with Israel when they left Egypt for Canaan. And says verse 17, this was a fulfillment of God's oracle to Abraham to first send Israel to a foreign land, then to rescue them from it, and then bring them to their own land, the promised land. Now Stephen sets the stage for the advent of Moses by briefly speaking about Israel's terrible time in Egypt shortly before their deliverance when newborn Hebrew babies were cruelly killed on the order of the Pharaoh. And this was due to the dramatic multiplying of Israel's population in the most impossible of circumstances. One of the things being accomplished here is that Stephen is cementing his personal identity with Moses, calling him beautiful, so that any charges against him, that he would blaspheme or deny Moses, would be seen as absurd. Now Stephen goes on to explain that in a wonderful irony, Moses, a hated Hebrew, was raised in Pharaoh's household and he was given the best education. But then verse 25, uh, 23 rather tells us that something that ties in with our, our long discussion of Judaism in the synagogue. Stephen says Moses was 40 years old when still as a member of the Pharaoh's household he decides he goes, he's going to go visit with his Israelite brothers. This of course doesn't mean that there was a journey involved. It just means Moses had been segregated from the Hebrew community that lived next to the ethnic Egyptian community. Here's what I want you to catch. Nowhere in the Torah do we find that Moses was 40 years old when he went to see his Israelite brothers. Nowhere. So did Stephen just use a bit of rhetorical license to invent a number to embellish his story? Of course not. In fact, it was a number that at least the mob that wanted to kill him would have agreed with. You see, 40, the number 40 is tradition. It came from the synagogue. And since Stephen was, as were all Jews in this era, products of the synagogue, except for the priests and Levites who were products of the temple, he simply took this tradition of Moses being 40 at this time as immutable fact. Now I point this out because it's yet another opportunity to demonstrate that the thought processes of the writers and of the Bible characters of the New Testament, all of it revolve around the synagogue and around oral Torah tradition because that's what was taught there. They did so automatically, unconsciously because that's what they knew. Simply a part of who they were. It's not unlike Christianity accepting December 25th is the date of Jesus' birth. There's not one hint in the Bible that this is so. But because Roman church authorities long ago deemed it to be so, few in the modern church would even think to question it. December 25th is Christ's birthday is a man-made tradition with no basis of historical fact or record. And neither is Moses being 40. At the time of the event in Egypt that Stephen refers to, historical fact or record. It too is just man-made tradition. 
but Lord help anyone who would dare to challenge either of these points. That is, the power of long-held customs and traditions and doctrines, especially in a religious environment, sometimes the effect of that is benign. At other times, it's malignant. And it causes grievous doctrinal errors. In verse 25, Stephen makes the point that Moses, like Joseph, was rejected by his brother Israelites. Again, his point is to make an obvious connection to Yeshua. But says Stephen, Moses was rejected because the Hebrews didn't understand that he was their deliverer, their savior. So he kind of softens his rhetoric by making the Israelites' early rejection of Moses and Joseph and by association Yeshua due to ignorance rather than knowingly choosing to deny the Son of God. Next, Stephen quotes Exodus 2.14 and says that when Moses intervened in a dispute among Hebrews, they retorted, Who made you ruler and judge over us? So what we see in Moses' second act as a mediator, this time he was a mediator, when he was a mediator between a Hebrew and a an Egyptian this time he was a mediator between two Israelites and these combatants now question Moses' authority over them but more they remind Moses of his first act of mediation when he killed an Egyptian for striking a Hebrew so here we see God's future mediator mediate with both Gentiles and Hebrews on earthly matters but we also see how hard-hearted the Hebrews had become. And as a result, Moses had to flee to Midian from fear of prosecution for murder. Well, Stephen now turns to that moment when Moses became God's official mediator as he describes the burning bush again, uh, burning bush event. But once again, we see synagogue tradition play a role in Stephen's speech. He begins verse 3 by saying, After 40 more years, an angel appeared to him in the desert. In fact, the Torah does not say Moses' age when he fled Egypt, nor how long he spent in Midian. The best Torah reference we get in determining Moses' age is in Exodus 7-7, when we're told that Moses was 80 years old the first time he confronted Pharaoh. That's all we know. So here, Stephen is merely quoting oral Torah. Tradition, assuming it is fact, and I must say I kind of find it amusing that since his speech wound up in the New Testament, Moses being 40 when he fled Egypt and spending 40 years in Midian is taken by the church to be biblically and historically accurate. When in fact, it's just ancient synagogue tradition. Now, Stephen starts to narrow his message and the purpose of it by saying that Moses, the one who was rejected by the people of Israel saying, who made you ruler and judge, is in fact the very ruler that God has chosen to be ruler and judge over his chosen people, Israel. In other words, the people were wrong to question Moses. In fact, they at first ridiculed and rejected God's appointed ruler and judge. But this time, Stephen adds to his characterization of Moses by adding the word ransomer. 
ransomer. Now this, of course, starts to draw his story closer and closer to Yeshua. And Stephen says in verse 36 that it is this man, Moses, who is God's deliverer, Savior, took Israel out of Egypt through great signs and miracles, led them through the desert wilderness for 40 years, and knowing that the synagogue members and the high priest and the Sanhedrin whom he was addressing wouldn't in any way dispute his logic conclusion to this point, he now reminds them that this same Moses that was venerated by all Jews is the one who said that at a later time God would raise up a prophet like him from among the Israelites. The unspoken question, of course, is, so who is this prophet like Moses? Stephen then returns to the theme of disobedience by saying that now that Moses' authority from God had been revealed, the people of Israel did not want to obey Moses. In other words, this was not an act of ignorance now but rather it was a display of willful rebellion against God and by extension against Moses as God's mediator. The intended implication is it's not Stephen who's speaking against Moses, it's his accusers. They're the rebels. And he uses the incident of the golden calf as an illustration of willful knowing, intentional refusal to obey God. There, Aaron, high priest of Israel, and don't miss Stephen's implied connection, by the way, between what Aaron, the high priest of Israel, did and what Caiaphas, high priest of current Israel, is doing. Caiaphas caught it, I promise you. They built God images. They led the people into rebellion, into worshiping false gods. Well, as we near a close for today, I'm going to pause for just a moment so that we don't lose the forest amidst the trees. This immense, undying respect that Stephen is showing towards Moses is his answer to Caiaphas about whether the accusations against him are true. And at the same time, Stephen is turning this mock trial on its head from being the accused to becoming the accuser by comparing his persecutors with the worst of the historical rebels against God and Moses, making them one and the same. Do not think for a moment that everybody there didn't fully comprehend what Stephen was doing. We'll conclude the story of Stephen as the first recorded believing martyr next time.